Hi, this is Bill Allerton from Urban Tiger Radio, a project sponsored by Cybermouse Multimedia, bringing you free podcasts to download or listen to live online on your favorite podcast player, iTunes, Stitcher.com, SoundCloud, or just Google us and you will find us everywhere. Enjoy. So we're really privileged to have Bill Allerton with us. Hello, Bill. How do you do? Now, I asked Bill how I could introduce him, and the list is too long. So I'm just going to go with writer and podcaster. Well, that'll do for a start. For now. Okay. (laughs) So, Bill, you've had a really long career of things that you've done. Can you begin at the beginning and tell us how you first got into writing? I I think my first passion for writing came actually in primary school, probably around about the age of about nine or ten. My friend, who, who I've become reacquainted with after many, many, many years, who I now see pretty regularly, said he always used to be jealous of me because when we had to do a composition after a holiday, mine was always five pages and his was <laughs> half a page. So I suppose I always had a bit of a natural aptitude for language. Well, in fact, I know I did because I never used to shut up. And uh, in fact, that, I always thought that was my name for a while, Billy Shuttle. <laughs> uh, so were you praised for your writing, or did they sort of think you were a show-off or something? Uh, I don't know. I, I, there were several of us in the class that were pretty good at uh, putting the pen to paper, or a pencil as it was then. I used to get a better use for the pens. What we used to do was stick the nib in the end of a straw and use it like a dart. But that's... <laughs> it didn't further in my oh. career in school at all. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, yeah, I, I just like writing. I like, like creating. I used to uh, write in the back of books, strangely enough. That I'd read a book or something, and, and I'd sort of write inside the back cover. But my, I think my first passion must have been really for reading, and I think that's where I get the fact that I can really pull words out thin air. And in Highfields Library, which was across the road from where I grew up, I think they thought I was an infestation because... I used to be on the floor somewhere in the corner and have a pile of books and I'd be there for hours and reading. And somebody would keep coming coming around and saying, are you all right, Billy? (laughs) 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 When's your mum coming? (laughs) (laughs) So I I spent hours and hours in uh, Eiffel's library and and I I loved it. I had very few books at home, apart from comic annuals that I used to get at Christmas. But over there were books that you you could read that had a narrative and that. Did you kind of know that books were a thing if they sort of weren't part of your background? When I, I, I read from a very, very early age. I was probably about three, three and a half, and I Ooh, could, that I is could read children's books. By the time I was about four and a half, I could read the star upside down. Mm-hmm. And that was because my grandfather used to come home when we, when we lived with him at that time. I was sat at one end of a small table and he would sit at the other and he'd have his tea after all the rest of us and he'd, she'd put his plate down in front of him and he'd open the star in front of him and of course I'd be looking at the star from the other side so I started to work out what the headlines were upside down and I got to the point that I could read upside down I still can read upside down quite fluently which, when I was in business, was really useful because you knew what the other guy had got on his desk. <laughs> so yeah, gave you a bit so of an advantage. It gave you an edge because you knew what his notes were. So 
it was uh, you know so, so I, I think my passion for writing came from reading because this is something that I could do and do quite easily. So do the adults around you feel like, yes, this is a useful skill, he's going to be really academic, let's get him to the grammar school? Well, they hoped I was going to be academic. Um, through uh, infants and primary, I was academic. I was always in the top three. And usually it was my English that got me up there. And uh, and then I went to high stores, which was a complete culture shock. What was um, that then? Was it, it was a, a grammar school. It was a grammar yeah, school it was then. A grammar school. Yeah. And, and the headmaster made the teachers wear the, the gown and the motorboard. So it was like something like Tom Brown's school days, compared to the supportive atmosphere I'd, I'd been in. Uh, at Cheryl Lane, people would answer your questions. At high stores, no one had time to answer questions if they weren't part of the syllabus. Now, I've got the kind of mind that escapes like a rabbit down a rabbit hole and, and pursues it to see where, just to see where it comes out the other end. And no one's got time for that. And this is where education fails just about everybody. And if only there was time to explore ideas, people's ideas, the world would be a better place because people would grow up having ideas and feeling it was okay to have new ideas, think about new things, new ways of doing things. And all that gets stifled into the conformity of the exam process. And I don't do exams. Right. I, I'm terrible at exams. Partially because I don't believe in them. Uh, and the other thing is I don't respond well to an exam situation. I'm not a regurgitator of facts. I'm a deliverer of new opinions, new preferences, new ways, new perspectives. And that's all I want to be and that's what I want to do. So does that sum up my education? It really does, actually. <laughs> yes, that's right, very succinct. Fine, so okay. you, you didn't succeed necessarily academically. So no, not at all. So you got an apprenticeship. Yeah, I wanted earlier. to be a journalist, but nobody knew where you could go and learn to be a journalist. And uh, and everybody was saying to me, well, without any qualifications, you're never going to get anything. You're never going to be anything. You're never going to get anywhere. Uh, I proved them all wrong eventually. So my father was a plumber. And uh, I knew a lot of people connected with the trade and I found it quite easy to get an apprenticeship as a, as a plumber. I've been to work with my dad actually a few times when I was small and sort of enjoyed it as in, in the way that a child would enjoy the world of work because it's new and it's different and I could see possibilities and things were not so regimented as school. So I, I took an apprenticeship as a, as a plumber, absolutely hated it, that uh, served my term as an apprentice and then I moved on from there. All my writing at this time had been stifled after my first year at high stores. They'd really stamped on it. And, and so consequently, that was all in a back burner. Inside. It was, yeah, it was just all inside. I still read a lot. I kept reading, reading, reading. Science fiction's my favourite. I have a huge library of science fiction paperbacks. And I uh, don't know what I'm going to do with it. Or somebody will probably put them all in a tea chest when I die and took them down get the Get them down, down Highfield's library. Yeah. Yeah, as I was still reading, so and reading as much as I could, and science fiction is my favourite of all time. And basically, because it doesn't conform. No, and no, it doesn't. And it doesn't I'm, have the sort of cultural snob value that, yeah. say, Dickens would. Yeah. It's a maverick, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. thank you for that. Cultural <laughs> snob value. That applies to Shakespeare and yeah. Dickens and, uh, and ad infinitum, really. So... Whilst I was looking for other ways to earn a living, I actually took a heavy goods vehicle driving test and went driving heavy goods for wow. four years. 
So uh, I've been around the block, literally, a few times, <laughs> you know, carrying all sorts of stuff. So, uh, and, and I have to say, without a shadow of a doubt, that being a heavy goods vehicle driver is probably the most boring job in the world. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely I was going to say, well, I bet it's really interesting, because you can see no, loads of things not. out the window. You, no, it's not. I've seen every inch of tarmac on the M1. Uh, and... And basically, and everybody else's tail lights, and, and that's about all you see. No, you don't uh, see much. There's a lot of responsibility. It's heavy duty work. It's difficult to stay awake if your mind is escaping elsewhere. And uh, I, I would never go back to that. I'm glad I did it. Because I like driving things. I like driving big things, particularly. I went to Poland a few years ago driving steam engines. On the oh, yes, Hill. I read that on your website. Yeah, and that was absolutely amazing. With that old friend of mine, Mick Hobdy, who used to complain about the length of my compositions. At <laughs> <laughs> so when did you start seriously getting back into creative writing after that experience of being well, kind of pushed out of it? I was, I think I was 37. I always remember 37 because there are certain ages in your life that are significant. And I, I slipped into 37, into being 37, like, like putting on an old pair of slippers. It, it was something that it's just not really right felt for you. so yeah. right. And uh, how it felt was that it seemed as though I'd always been 37. When I was younger, when I was 15, 16, 17, uh, 50 or 60, it's like talking to an old man talking yeah. to me. Yeah, I remember the feeling, actually. <laughs> And yeah, I think you do as well, Charles. Yeah. And when I yeah, when I got to thirty seven I slipped into it. It was so comfortable, thirty seven, that it freed me to allow these these things that have been sitting in the back of my brain for a long time to uh, come to the fore and and and, and expose themselves <laughs> for want <laughs> of a better expression. Uh, and and so people found this quite strange because Following the death of my father when I was 18, I, I sort of got a bit locked in. And I was either locked in or locked out. I'm not sure which way you'd look at that one. I mean, I was locked out, I think, from the things that I would like to be. and locked into the things that I thought I had to be. And, and this was brought about by the death of my father, which was quite sudden. And the people that knew me from that period up to me being 37 suddenly found themselves confronted with a different person because the doors had opened. Wow. And, and I was... Was there new. a trigger for that? Sorry? Was that some sort of external trigger, like a teacher or a writing group? I think at that time I was reasonably successful uh, with my building, small building company, and it suddenly started to expand. And that may well have been the trigger. But you know when people have talked, talked you down a lot of your life, um, especially if you're not academic in a place like High Store, saying you'll never get this, you'll never do this without a qualification, you'll never be this, you'll never have anything, you'll never do, you know, suddenly to find yourself successful makes you question the validity of that success because you've spent a large part of your life understanding that you're never going to do this, that you're never going to have that, and you're never going to be this, and then suddenly you are. So where, do you, where does life take you from there? What I found was that the validity of that success was under question at that point. And that led to a certain degree of anxiety, which um, rocked me for three or four years, probably. And I overcame that anxiety with the help of 
hypnotherapy. Oh wow! Yeah, I was. I, I would recommend it to anyone if, if they're suffering from anxiety. People don't understand what anxiety is. Anxiety is a, is is a beast that yeah, is inside we all do. you. It's not, uh, yeah, it's not you're anything. Amongst, you're amongst friends yeah, you're, here, Bill. You're not anxious about anything in particular because once you solve that problem, it just moves on to another. It's anxiety and it's it's a thing that you have to live with and deal with. And it's possible. So for anybody out there that's actually suffering, there is hope out there and it is possible to live with anxiety and in a very successful manner. So maybe that was part of it and I think the trigger would have been the success, the unexpected success and that led to the anxiety which was brought about possibly because of the opening of the door and suddenly realising that I'm not the person that everybody around me thinks I am and suddenly I've got to come to terms with being that new person that new person is quite artistic creative and uh, um, reactive, helpful, reasonable, all things I haven't been <laughs> for a long period of time, especially the reasonable bit. And it takes time to assimilate that and, and become that new person. So, Gosh, that is an inspiring story, to be honest. So we move on from there. Of your creative um, output, what, what are you most proud of of the stuff you've done? What am I most proud of? Uh, well, I have two children, which is a stock answer. So, but I mean, you're it, writing what you but, think. But my I'm writing, really I, with that. I, well, I, I have a, a novel out there called The Fox and the Fish, which is a, a cry for freedom, love, anarchy, and immortality. Uh, I've got them all in there. Uh, it's that's a completely off the wall. That is actually what I wanted to write. I, for once, I wrote, I've written dozens and dozens of short stories. For once, I wrote this book that I really wanted to write. It's crazy. It's a blunderbuss approach to hopes, wants, needs and and necessities. And it takes a bit of understanding, but I think you've got to understand the book before you get into it. You've got to realise that this is not a... uh, I'm not saying it's not a consistent narrative, because it does have a consistent narrative all the way through, but it's not a conventional narrative. It explores things from... You, you know something, let's try and explain to a little comedy, uh, which I've done a short course on actually. Oh, comedy, really? yeah, comedy, stand up comedy. I've done some stand up comedy too. So, comedy is looking for the ridiculous, right, in, in any given subject. Then, when you find the ridiculous, you look underneath that and you find the absolutely outrageous, and that's the joke. So I'm hoping that that is what the book did, and uh, because I think it's, I, I bypassed the ridiculous and went straight to the outrageous. So lots of people like it, and uh, and here's a good clue to see the emperor's new clothes. My really intelligent friends enjoyed it. That's always <laughs> it's it's who enjoys something is a yeah. If you, if you bought that book, as... you would expect it as a straightforward novel. Modern British novel with, uh, with with a consistent narrative. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, if you want a good romp through somebody's inner fears, then it's a it's a really enjoyable romp. And is that on Amazon? Bill? That's should, on. That's if on, people should fancy a look at that. Yes, that's on Amazon. The Fox and the Fish by Bill Allerton. And uh, yes, it's available on uh, paperback, Kindle, or wherever. 
um, as well as writing, you also do a podcast called Urban Tiger. Do you want to tell us a bit about what Urban Tiger is? Urban Tiger Radio, I call Urban it. Tiger Although Radio. it is a podcast station, yes. so, you know, <laughs> it, it, I like the name. Um, Urban Tiger Radio, just to go back to the basics, you've see, if you've seen a picture of it, it's got the picture of my cat in the middle, <laughs> Nelly, and uh, couldn't resist a picture because she looks so evil in it. <laughs> it's got a real, real scowl at you on, the, on this picture. The way it came about was that sleeping at night is not always easy, especially if your mind's firing off in all different directions. And I, I found that by putting podcasts on, I found a really good scene for science fiction podcasts mm. called Relic Radio. They've got all the American shows from the 50s, and, and there are thousands of those, and, and they're really entertaining. Some of them are quite crass, but the adverts are the best. They're absolutely the adverts are so blatant. But anyway, so I got used to listening to podcasts at night, and I thought, I could do this, and I could do this with my short stories and podcasts of the people that I know. So... I set about looking at this, recorded two or three things, put it together. The name Urban Tiger Radio just sprang to mind one day. And because I'd been listening to Relic Radio, an all-time radio, the radio thing was a given. It, yeah. it just works. And Urban Tiger, which is what I call our cab. <laughs> and uh, so Urban Tiger Radio with a picture of Nelly on the front. I mean, So what I thought I could do was podcast some of my short stories, onto there. I know quite a lot of musicians who mm. write their own work, and, uh, and I quite, quite know quite a lot of writers, too, who are unpublished but deserve to be. So I thought what I'll do is I'll put some of my own work on there, because nobody's buying my books, So, which, <laughs> which is the face of most writers. I'm not bemoaning my face. It's the face of most writers if people don't buy your books. And how, so, how have you coped with that? Well, you have this, uh, initially when you put a book out there, you have this, this thing about, you know, you, you, you're having a shower and then you're thinking, I could be doing this and then going to uh, somewhere to give a talk in a hall or whatever, you know, about my new book. <laughs> yeah. you know, how good would that be? You know, and then gradually it starts to dissipate. Um, I'm used to disappointment. You don't get to my age without being used to disappointment, <laughs> I suppose. The content I decided to use was my friends, people I know, uh, my own work, and musicians that I've come across. And so I'll go out and interview someone, a musician, for instance, and get them to play some of their original work or provide me with tracks that they've already pre-recorded. And I put that together as a podcast and, and put it out there. Uh, one in particular, Paul Middleton, who fronts the Angst Band, is a friend of mine who lives in Harrogate. He's a Sheffield Rotherham lad, which means he qualifies for the podcast. <laughs> and uh, But his work is absolutely fantastic. His life story is even better. And that's that's on the podcast. Writers, I've, I've done all the writers that have been in the Novel Slam that Sheffield University organised. And Stephen Meller is one of them. And he's a tremendous writer. I, I can't praise him highly enough. There's Eleonora, um, an Italian girl who writes in English, which is a very interesting concept when you think about it. So second language, which she won't write in Italian, because English is more expressive. There you go. She's not another brilliant writer. I've got Bryony, uh, my partner, and, and other people's poetry on there. 
And so I'm pushing this work out because this work deserves to be heard. I haven't yet put out a podcast, apart from one of my own that springs to mind, that doesn't deserve to be heard. And and I, I see it as my way of contributing something into a world that I was excluded from for a long time because of circumstances. And I, I just feel like I'm helping. So these people have now got a platform. That's amazing. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's where I get my payback. Yeah, that's what we do as well. Yeah. Well, that all sounds amazing. And I think that is now a prime time to hear some of Urban Thai Radio. Um, We've got a poem called Doing John Agard for GCSE by Bryony Dorham. Do you want to introduce that piece of poet for us? Yes, I'd I'd like to introduce uh, Bryony Dorham, who is actually my partner. And I've known her for a good number of years now. I actually found her at a writer's group. (laughs) Actually, I think she found me, but... uh, (laughs) I've got to give her credit for that. She knew what she was doing when she found him. Doing John Agar for GCSE is about her son. Her son, when he was, uh, well, a few years ago, she was in his 20s, came home one day and said, I'm joining the army. Uh, Not just the army, he wanted to be a paratrooper. So Tim went off and trained to be a paratrooper and uh, consequently was sent to Afghanistan. Now, in order to maintain her sanity while Tim was in Afghanistan, because it was very tough, because I experienced this one too, Bryony began to write poetry. Bryony is a very, very good poet anyway, uh, but this, the sense of anxiety around Tim being in Afghanistan, created a set of uh, poetry from Bryony that is absolutely stunning. And it's her way of dealing with the, as I said, with the anxiety of Tim being there. And, and the potential loss and the potential damage. And it, it's in Homefront, which is a, a compilation of four poets, two American and two British. And I can tell you who they are in a minute. But Bryony's poetry is so sensitive and so nuanced around this. Doing this, this particular poem is very, very poignant. I actually remember where this came from and that makes it very poignant for me too so enjoy doing Johnny it's that. fabulous I saw uh, Bryony performing at First Matters and she blew everyone away so yeah. enjoy fantastic so here is um, doing John Agard for GCSE by Bryony Doran no dawdling that day he fairly loped home from school exploding through the front door into my workroom I laid down my black-handled shears and switched off the sewing machine. You fetched the biscuits. I made a brew. Then we sat on my unmade bed and drank tea, yours with one sugar and chocolate digestives. You told me about the John Agard poem, standing to give a rendition in front of my mirror, always the natural mimic, the class clown. You plagued us for days. Explain yourself, standing on one leg. What do you mean when you say half-gassed? How did we get snuck up on? You out there in Afghanistan manning a checkpoint, a delayed voice asking for thermal socks. Me here in front of my full-length mirror, hearing kids return from school, doing my exercises, trying to strengthen my core, to balance on one leg. 
pulling my foot up behind to hold for thirty seconds. And there you are in my mirror, standing on one leg. So that was Doing John Agard for GCSE by Briny Doran. And that is available in uh, on Amazon and in all good bookshops. It's called Homefront, and it's published by Blood Axe Books, who are very, very prestigious. They are. They're really uh, prestigious. Poetry publisher. Yeah. And I wish I had their publicity machine, but there you go. <laughs> Which is why I'm not publishing yeah. anymore. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm really getting from you, Bill, is just what an incredible collaborator you are and how fertile you found it working with other people. We were talking before we started the interview about some of the work that you've done with writers' groups and a forum that you set up to get yeah. writers' groups to work together. It was it was called Networks. Um, it was born out of a belief that when you were a member of a writers' group, you were part of this ever-decreasing spiral because you bring along a piece of work that might be fresh and original and you read it to the group. And depending on who's in the group, you get various opinions coming back at you and maybe nobody likes it. But that doesn't mean there's no value in what you've written. It just means that there's no one in the group that appreciates your style of literature. So you go away and you come back and you've, you've rewritten it again and, it, and, it, and it's starting to conform to the group. And then you start to write for the group, so that when you write a piece of a piece of uh, literature, short story, poetry, whatever, you're writing it to read it to a group whose opinions you know, so you write to those opinions. That is wrong. That is the way to disappear up your own backside <laughs> as a writer. And I thought that there was merit in cross-fertilising groups from different places. Not just groups from the next parish, but groups from all over the place. And I, I found a place in Doncaster called The Point, which was funded by the Arts Council, as were Networks, which is what I set up, which was Networks with an X. And you'll find the recording of various poets from Networks on my podcast, Urban Tiger Radio. Networks attracted people from Huddersfield, Rotherham, Doncaster, Grimsby, and all sort of points in between. We had 45 people sometimes at a session. We ran workshops in there where everybody experienced some sort of cross-fertilisation of ideas and people were reading things or working with a new audience which opened up other worlds for them with writing. I had people like Peter and Anne Sampson, Ray Hearn, come and do workshops and a guy who knew how to do recording on a PC to show them how easy it was and he did recordings that are now on my podcast. So yes, it was really good and I, I ran it personally for about four years and then someone else took it on for about another two or three and, and ran it and I hope that everybody benefited from it. A lot of these people are still friends of mine on email, etc. So it was a good way of collecting friends, I think, as much as anything. <laughs> so, but it, it was good. I learned a lot. And I, I learned about managing other people to an extent, although I, I, I was running a company at the time. Hmm. And, uh, managing you've done ego, some work as well with... Um, sorry, yeah, managing egos yeah. as writers. <laughs> yeah, a particular well, problem, would you say? Uh, yes, especially mine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about anybody else's. Mine's a so-and-so to work with. 
But anyway. Because you've done some work editing as well. It sounds like you've yes, worked really I, productively I've, editing yeah, and other I've people worked, editing I've your work. I've worked with work. other people. Like, for five years, I ran a small publishing company called Cybermouse Multimedia Limited, and I've produced books for various new authors. I also republished books for people who had been published quite famously, and uh, notably Burley Doherty. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very famous Sheffield author. And I, I hope I brought three or four new authors to... Uh, to the public, uh, you know, awareness as well. And in the throes of that, I had to edit the books, lay them out, typeset, do the covers. I, I love graphic design, which is just another something else that I'm yeah. like doing. Uh, and I've yeah. used, I used to do a lot of photography. Yeah. And so yes, I've so. used a lot of my old photographs in the graphic design because they're royalty free, of course. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I've used, um, some of my things in, in unusual ways that my book Firelight on Dark Water, the cover is of it looks like someone in bandages in the middle of a fire. It's actually a marble statue outside the Palazzo Pitti in Florence, and the flames at the back are from the the uh, top of the volcano in Lanzarote. So you know you you mix and match and you produce a cover that's absolutely stunning and and it and it is. If I say so myself, it's yes, I believe you. And then I do things like out of the blue. I did um, a cover and a layout for a friend who's well, someone who is now a friend, but was a stranger actually. And and I thought it's a good way to make a friend. Yeah, I thought his book had merit, so I rewrote it for him, part of it. And he was and happy he, for you to do and that. And he came back, well, I expected a smacking, but he came back and said, that's just what it needed. I'm now going to rewrite the whole book. What's so the skill in doing that for somebody? What's the skill in saying, this is what you need to change? Right. Two things. One is it's easier to do for someone else yeah. than it is to do for yourself, mm-hmm. because you can't see the wood for your own trees. Yep. And, uh, and the skill is taking a dispassionate look at it and, and saying, yeah, that's very nice. It's very poetic, but it doesn't belong in here. And it's it's about recognising. I, I have a thing, it's called taking the rocks out. Writing is a river, a fast-flowing yeah. river. You put a big rock in the middle of that river and you divert it all around and people lose the thread, right? And I take the rocks out so yeah. the river flows. And I know now, after all this experience, years and years of experience of writing, where the rocks are and how to Do you think you can out. take your own rocks out? Or yes, I can. Think yeah. It's harder yeah. to take mine out than to yeah, take, take else someone is. else's out. That that goes without, you know, saying. It's because there is no ego involved in taking someone else's rocks out. Yeah. You might think that's a very pretty piece of prose. Yeah. But it's got no it's place clunky. in there. Yeah. But, but you know how hard it was to craft that piece of prose. So yourself, if it's yeah. your own work. Absolutely. So it's really difficult to lift it out and dispense with it. What about when you're working with children? Because Can I just say oh, sorry. something yeah. to that? No, it's all right. No, it's good. Because what what happens at the, re- the end result of that process is that you take all these rocks out, then you go back and you read it through again, and you've totally forgotten the bits you've taken out. Right. You don't yeah. say, oh, there was something in there. or Yeah, they're just gone. They're gone. Yeah. So they weren't necessary in the first place. No. So, sorry. So, no. Yeah, so I, you've read on your website that you worked a little bit with children. Yeah. Was uh, that a different process when you're talking yes, about Yes, it was a very different process and very high pressure. I what what happened was I went to Cheryl Lane School, which is my old wow. primary. I school. really like the quote where you said you're still the naughtiest boy in the class. 
<laughs> yeah, I am, and I, I aim to be for the whole of my life. So is that necessary? Do you yeah. think to inspire the children? No, that's, that's my ego trip. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm the naughtiest child in the class, and uh, always will be in my book. Anyway, uh, basically because I think outside the box. Yep. And nobody. Can we go back to Charlene? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Nobody tells me not to. So Charlene, I was asked to go in and help children who had got no incentive to read and, uh, and asked if I would do that. So I gave up Friday mornings to, for about five or six years to do that. A lot of the children in Shell Lane School, it's quite high ethnic minority, lots of people didn't have books at home. So I'd sit down with two, three, four children and we'd, we'd say, okay, what's the story to be about? And they'd come up with various ideas and then we'd, we'd pick a consensus of that and then say, well, who do you want to be? in the story and what do you want these characters to do so we'd sit down and plot a story and and the characterization i would then go away and be expected to have a story by the following friday wow. yeah which i never failed them no but you I, didn't you can't fail kids no you no. can't right. so we came up with all sorts of things that some of the things that i was given to, to work with. One of the, the title of one of the stories is Foxes, Frogs and Rice Pudding. <laughs> so, and, and it had to have uh, a ghost, lots of blood and a spaceship. Right, okay, so we've got a story called Foxes, Frogs and Rice Pudding, which on Urban Tiger Radio, Children's Hour, has had loads and loads of hits. Now, people think it's good, it's funny. It sounds amazing. And it is. And, and all the stories were of that nature. Um, I've got one called on, And the Ship Sails On and it's about uh, a galleon and someone wanted to be a shark someone wanted to be a soldier someone wanted to be a princess and a vampire and a ship's captain And did the children uh, want to read more after that? Well, what happened was when I took them back I printed out a copy for everyone who'd taken part in it and they spent the rest of the day walking around with this thing held to the chest, <laughs> right? Because they absolutely adored it, because their name was in it, you see. Oh, I, wow. I named all the characters after them, and, uh, and their name was in it. And I, I keep meeting up with people years, even quite recently, who say, my son's still got that story. Oh, that's so you know, Or we've still got that book that you put together for these children. What do you think about all the grammar and the spag and the learning to put um, noun phrases into the work? Um, Fan of that? It's really difficult for me to comment on that because language came to me uh, as a form of absorption. I, I absorbed language. I listened to people and it sank in. It's, I realised that kind of assimilation is a bit of a gift. I'm not saying I'm a gifted writer, I'm a gifted listener. And and I can assimilate information into language in, in that way. So the formal process of language, which I did very well at in uh, junior school, now escapes me because it's something I do naturally. It's like breathing. And I don't mind breaking the rules because it's more interesting when you break the rules. But I'm no longer aware of what all the rules are. I'm just a they're writer. Quite, they're quite strict now. Yeah, yeah, they're but I'm just a, I'm just a writer, so I just write, and and I use the tool that I've got, which is my memory and my experience, and I don't use formulas 
to write. Because interestingly, children are now forced to write using a plan. They can't pre-write at all. Which leads us into one of my our favourite questions <laughs> that we ask all writers. Are you a planner or a discovery mm. writer? I'm, I'm a discovery writer. Yeah. Excellent. Of course without, you are. Without <laughs> shade of, of course a doubt. you are. Yeah, fantastic. Without a shade of a doubt, I'm a discovery writer. There is a problem with being a discovery writer, and that's that you tend to write two novels <laughs> and then condense it to one. Yes. Whereas a planner writes one novel. Yeah. But when you pick it up to read it, you know it's been planned. <laughs> right. Well, with mine, you never know where they're no. going, but they always go somewhere. But you're never sure where they're going. But neither am I when I start to write. Fantastic. That's what we like. And then when you're sort of starting the process, how long if you get like one idea? Is that it? Do you start it, or do you let that idea germinate and like grow? I I grow the idea. Mm. Um, I sort of fertilise the idea. I have a novel which is not far off being completed, maybe about six months' hard work away from being completed, and and that's called Mechanismo, okay. which is Greek, and it's it's about the Antikythera mechanism, which you've probably never heard of. No, I've never heard of that. Right. Okay. Oh, okay. Our producer knows. He knows. <laughs> yeah, he knows. So... Basically, what it is was a, a shapeless piece of calcified bronze that was dredged up from a, a ship off the island of Antikythera, which is off the Peloponnese. And nobody knew what it was. It was chucked in a box in the Athens Museum until somebody started once. We, this was in 1900. And when x-rays came in, in the sort of 30s, 20s, late 20s, 30s, they x-rayed this and found it had dials and cogs mm-hmm. and bits and pieces that <gasps> couldn't recognise. Yes, I do know what that is, yes. Right. So then the guy who discovered, who found it in the box was accused of being a uh, perpetrator of a hoax because this thing couldn't possibly have been made at that time in 86 BC because mm-hmm. it had a differential gear which wasn't invented mm-hmm. until 1500 AD. Or so they thought. And then later, scans, carbon dating, after this poor guy had died, proved that he was right. Mm-hmm. But there you go. So it now tells, this thing will tell you the date, phases of moons, planets, etc., in several different calendars, depending on how you set it. Mm-hmm. So I decided there was a story in there. Yeah. And, uh, and so I began... A story. Now, this story encompasses four different timelines oh, covering wow. 2,000 wow. years. <laughs> it was on an eight foot by four foot sheet, sheet of plastic on the wall with yellow posters everywhere. Oh, just fabulous. trying to just trying to organise it. I wrote it in sort of discrete chapters, but then organising the timeline through it yeah. was was very difficult. And especially when you have a friend called Andrew Nimmo who walks in our house and shifts some of the papers around. Oh no. <laughs> Because he thinks it's funny. (laughs) But I forgive him because he's a lovely friend. And talking of process, um, I like to ask everyone this. Where's your best place to write? Is it your front room? Is it a coster down the street? Is it... It's in my front room. Yes. Um, I have a computer with a big screen. And uh, and I need that. Because when I'm working, I I don't know if this is common with writers. Um... I like to have a couple of three pages open at once okay. because I'm working, but I'm scanning ah. across the pages, which gives me context. Mm. It keeps me in context when I'm writing. I can't write line by line by line by line without 
having to recap where I've been before because otherwise you're just writing the same thing over and over again. So uh, whether that's common with writers or not, I don't know. But I, I like to have yeah. an expansive area in which to work. And then I get lost. Like Turner, <laughs> a Turner of words. A Turner, oh, wow. yeah. yeah. And then I get that. lost in this thing. I, I, it becomes me and I become it. And once that happens, then you're writing. Okay. This is what we call climbing through the window. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, you're yeah. in a different world. Yeah. You, 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 you and the computer and your words are all as one. And that is a fantastic place to be. Amazing. Well, that's very insightful. And I think that's an absolutely brilliant interview on the whole. Fascinating, insightful. So thank you very much for that. But seeing as this is our Christmas show, one last grasp of being relevant. And this is a complete left field question. What's your favourite Christmas story or feature of a Christmas story? Is it ghosts? Is it talking animals? Or do you it's just... me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, my birthday is Christmas Day. Oh, so amazing. Am, there we go. I am my own. <laughs> I am my own Christmas story. Um, what's, what's my favourite Christmas story? Uh, um, I have one of my own. <laughs> the exit plug it. <laughs> which is Firelight on Dark Water, which is on the Urban Tiger Radio podcast. Amazing. So, so where, um, if people want to listen yeah. to that, just give people some details well, people, about where they people, can find okay. it. Okay. People go on SoundCloud and put in Urban Tiger Radio. Mm-hmm. If they go on Apple, iTunes, yes. podcasts, and type in Urban Tiger Radio, it will download to their phone yep. or subscribe computer. and rate five yeah. stars. Uh, it's on, uh, yeah, and it's on Apple, uh, it's on Line On, and it's on one called Overcast. And so all these awesome. are podcast players. Yeah. And, and just put Urban Tiger Radio. And if you want the children's one, don't let the children loose on Urban Tiger Radio. <laughs> but Urban Tiger Radio Children's Hour is perfectly safe um, for, for children up to, say, I don't know, 13 or 14. Okay, brilliant. So. And thank you so much for that interview. That was insightful and fascinating. You've been Bill Allerton from Urban Tiger Radio. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Nice to meet you. More than welcome. I should have brought Nelly. <laughs> You've just been listening to another excellent podcast from Urban Tiger Radio, sponsored by Cybermouse Multimedia. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, don't forget to click the little heart button on your way out and let everyone else know that you like it. So, once again, that's a goodbye from me and a from now. Bye.